gives us his word to equip us so that we can make uh, good, wise and responsible decisions. And we've got that privilege to uh, read it and try to think about how we should live as his people. But at times life still remains complicated and there are a lot of things that are outside of our control. In Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9 we read that in his heart a man plans his course but the Lord determines his steps. In his heart a man plans his course but the Lord determines his steps. Well in my heart a few years ago uh, I planned to only have two boys uh, to be the father of two boys. I grew up in a family with two boys and that's all I thought was going to be worthwhile to have. Uh, and then God in his goodness and wisdom gave me and Joanne two girls. And then two boys and then another girl. Uh, it's interesting isn't it? How is it that you plan your course in your heart? It might have, might have been about having two boys but there might be other ways or other plans that you had for your heart. You plan the course of your life have you held on to those plans at all cost? Or are you willing to accept God's will and the way in which he works plans out? Well, today we see something of uh, a story of, well, not quite two kings. David, in this point of the story, is not yet king, uh, but two people who plan the course of their lives. But we see, above all, God determines steps. He's in control. In the first instance, we see that God is with his future king, which is King David to be. But at this point in the story, in chapter 30, it's a very desperate situation. And David, like the great Houdini, who's uh, renowned for escaping from chains, David's just managed to escape from a war against his own people. While he's trying to avoid being killed by King Saul, David's fled to the Philistines. And he's found favour with them. In particular, one of their leaders, a man called Achish, David comes under his leadership. But now he's got a problem. Because he's hiding with the Philistines, he's, uh, he's got to actually toe the line that the Philistines have got. And they're about to wage war with the Israelites. And so David's a bit like a pawn being pushed around on a chessboard. And he's in a tricky position, ready to fight against his own people and even against his own king, God's anointed, whom he's already tried very hard and refused to put, put his hand out and kill. Yet at the end of chapter 20, 29, in a wonderful way, we see David and his men are actually led away from a conflict with the Israelites. And this happens because David's been rejected by the Philistines. They remembered the song that was sung about David that Saul had slain his thousands but David, he's tens of thousands, and they thought he might have been a spy and ready to rebel against them. And so Achish, the Philistine, sends David packing and his little band of men, and they head off to a town called Ziklag. Now, if this was a movie that was being filmed, uh, the camera would be panning across now to a scene from Ziklag, and we see some drama unfold that's fairly shocking. David and his men received some bad news that the Amalekites have visited and left destruction. Ziklag's been burned, raided by the Amalekites, and the women and the children are taken away 
probably as captives for slave labour is what the, was characteristic of the ancient world. When people were captured, they were used as slaves. So it's a, dress, it's a dreadful situation and a desperate one. According to uh, Deuteronomy, the Amalekites had done a great deal of damage to God's people. They rebelled. They had been, when the Israelites were moving from Egypt into the Promised Land, the Amalekites uh, picked off some of the stragglers. And they were also caught up with practices of idolatry which were against God's will in the land. And part of the Israelites' movement into the land was to inflict God's judgment on idolatrous practices. They had involvement with cult prostitution and also uh, wickedness bound up with child sacrifices in some circumstances where uh, children could be offered in the burning bowl to the god Moloch. And so God brings judgment upon the inhabitants of the land. Unfortunately, uh, King Saul does not obey God entirely and he doesn't do the job. And the Amalekites are now back causing trouble for David and his men. And it's a very tough moment at this point in the story for David and his faithful crew. It's hard for us to imagine the gravity of the situation if we thought about going home today uh, to, our, to find our places burned and our families kidnapped, it would leave a feeling in us which would be somewhat a sinking feeling and a sickening feeling. And that's the kind of drama that David's faced with at this point in the story. In verse 4 of chapter 30 we read, So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. But it gets trickier for David as well. Verse 6 says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because his, of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So not only is David uh, grieving the loss of his family at this point in time, as the leader, he also takes responsibility for the other families as well. But he's worried because there's not only sorrow about their families, he's also distressed that he's going to be stoned to death as well. His skin is on the line. So in this part of the Bible, we see David's faced with a very despairing situation. But think about our own lives. When are the times when you despair? When do you get panicked or very low? One of the times that you worry a lot about life. It's interesting for someone who we know, King David's been promised that he will receive the kingship, we'd expect things are going to work out pretty smoothly. We'd think it'd be somewhat straightforward, but as we see, uh, life is not that simple. And even for Christians as well, people who are, have turned back to God, who enjoy God's forgiveness who've put their trust in Jesus and have a, an expectation that when they face God, when they die, uh, we have a saviour on the day of judgement who has dealt with our sins. We've been recipients of God's Holy Spirit who strengthens us and helps us to persevere as his people, even Christians. We might expect things are going to work out pretty well, but we know that life is still tricky. Well, what's our response going to be during these times when we despair as well. 
Well, we see that David finds strength in the Lord his God. He turns to one of the priests to find out God's will, whether he should um, pursue this band who's raided them. David could have hardened his hearts towards God, couldn't he? That could have been one of his responses. He's, he's experienced some uh, dreadful suffering at this point in time. He could have thought, well, I don't think I'll give any time to God. And I've heard people say that too. I've talked to people who have had some considerable sorrow in their lives. And each of us knows the depth of our own sorrow as well. I don't think people get too many years in life where they don't find some serious points of suffering. But one person who I'd spoken to in the past said, I don't think I'll ever talk to God again. That was their reaction to some hardship. But we don't see that in David. He finds strength in the Lord and he inquires of the Lord. At this point in salvation history, he goes to one of God's priests. He doesn't know what the outcome of events are going to be, but he puts his trust in God. And so we get a picture of godly character at this point in, in David. We get an opposite kind of picture in King Saul. King Saul, when he's confronted with uh, trying to work out the future, he goes and consults a, a, a witch and brings up or tries to bring up Samuel. But what, picture, what principles, if you like, can we learn here from David? Well, certainly he comes to God. He comes to God in prayer and seeks God's will. And that's a similar message to what Jesus has to us as well. When we're despairing, we should be confident in God's character and go to him in prayer to ask God to help us in our situation. That was Jesus' message about the unjust judge who doesn't care about people. There was a lady that goes to this judge asking for justice and he says, I'll give her justice so that she won't beat me down with her continual coming. See, Jesus is saying God's just a bit better than that rotten judge. He gives justice because he doesn't want to get worn out with someone continually nagging him, not because he really cares about her. Jesus is saying, well, God's much better than that. We should go to God in prayer because he cares for us. Jesus says, and, God, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night. He will give justice to them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God is a good judge. He loves his children. He's in control of all things. And he calls us to be people who are dependent upon him. David is different to King Saul in this matter. And he's a good model for us at this point. But David doesn't simply uh, come to seek God's mind in a word of prayer. Uh, David steps out in faith as well. He uh, springs into action as he takes his band of men off. At this point in the story, we, we start to hit the ground running. It's a bit like Bear Grylls in Man vs. Wild when he drops out of the helicopter. He hits the ground running. Well, these people, they're off, and the pace is going pretty hard and fast. In this instance, 600 people are off, but 200 of them uh, aren't as fit, and they stay behind. Brings to mind images of people in the uh, marathons in, in the Olympics, those who run out of energy and they start to stagger across the road and, and blow up, as they say. Well, there's a crew that stays behind at the creek, but a fit, fit bunch continue. They pursue 
and find an Egyptian who fills them in on the news about the Amalekites. And David and then his crew go and rout the enemy according to God's will and they take back what was captured. It's good news at this point. Of chapter 30, verse 18, we read, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they'd taken. David brought back everything. He took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, this is David's plunder. Well, he steps out, he comes to God and he also steps out in faith. Well, what will it mean for you and I to step out in faith? When I hear people talking about living by faith, sometimes they, they talk about uh, wanting just not to work and hoping that the floodgates of heaven will open up and gold will fall on them or that they'll find one of those special trees that grow money. And you know, For them, living by faith might mean that they don't do anything and God will somehow provide. I'm not convinced that that's actually what it means to live by faith. I think even as we, in our normal Christian lives, uh, seek to pray that the Lord's Prayer, you know, Lord, help us to live not by... What does he say? Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the normal Christian life, isn't it? We're praying to God that he'll provide us his daily bread. But it doesn't just fall out of heaven. Uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Stepping out in faith is going to mean meaning having a go at doing what we can to survive under God's provision. And if we can't get a job, we can still work as hard at getting a job if we can. Those kinds of things means that's what stepping out in faith is. But it's more than that too, isn't it? Stepping out in faith is not just asking God for provision so that we can survive. Stepping out in faith might be defending what we believe, taking a stand as Christians. At times uh, in the school I'm at, different people want to challenge me or ask me a few curly questions about God. They want, to, they want to stand in judgment of God and ask me a few good questions. And the, the challenge for me of stepping out in faith at those times is trying to keep my cool, answer the questions with gentleness and respect in the knowledge that although they might be busy judging God, the reality is God's actually judging them. And uh, they've got a little while, we do have a little while, to be rebellious and be the kings of our own lives, don't we? But as I tell the kids in the scripture class, God still gets us in the end. We can't run away from God. It doesn't matter whether you go to the depth of the ocean, you go to the moon, we can't run away from God and we will meet God when we're dead and we face him in judgment. And so it's the right time now to sort things out with God. So stepping out in faith for us as Christians is to defend the message of the gospel, that God in his goodness has provided salvation for us in Jesus. Well, David shows some good character. He comes to God, he steps out in faith. Our job isn't quite the same as his. He's engaging in holy war at this point in Israel's life. Our fight, according to the Apostle Paul, isn't against flesh and blood. We're not fighting the Philistines. Uh, our fight's against the spiritual forces of this present darkness to wage war against the devil who wants us to fall away. That's our challenge. 
You also see something of the character of David in this passage with respect to the spoils of war. He doesn't uh, he, he makes a ruling that those who stay with the baggage or the supplies, they also receive some of the, the spoils of war. And in a funny kind of way, David's also like those who are remaining with the supplies or the baggage because his people, the Israelites, are out waging war against the Philistines uh, up north while he's actually not engaged in that battle. So in a, in, a, in a funny kind of way, he's actually with the baggage. In fact, he's got the spoils. The other thing to note about King David at this point is he, he shares the booty with the other elders of Israel. Uh, one of the challenges for the king in Israel was that they weren't to lift their head above their brothers. They weren't to be an arrogant king. And we see David has humility to share this kind of booty. So under God's sovereignty, we can see that uh, although things got complicated for David and he couldn't see the future, God is still working out his plans. He's promised that David will be king and David is patiently waiting for that time to come. God's having a way of working things out according to his will. Saul, on the other hand, has a different kind of experience. Saul's kingship has been promised to come to an end and it's about to end, friends. We're going to see the fruit of failure. Again, if this was a, a movie scene, we'd be seeing the camera pan across now, moving up north to the battle where Saul faces the Philistines. Saul's already been terrified about this situation because he's called up Samuel from the dead through a witch and he's found out news from Samuel that's not good. And the news is that tomorrow him and his sons are going to be with Samuel six foot under. For Saul, things have really not gone well. They've gone pretty much from bad to worse. Occasionally you read about these athletes who do well and receive gold medals and sometimes they get asked about how they, how they, whether they're surprised whether they could get it. And they are surprised, of course, but they also know that it's one step on a series of steps of success. Since they've been little kids, some of them have swum and done well at school. They've gone to zone, they've gone to regional, they've gone to state, they've gone to the New South Wales titles, the Australian titles, they've made it into the Olympic team and it's just another step on a journey to receive a gold medal, going from good to, to wonderful. But for Saul, he starts out not great as the people ask for a king like the other nations and even early in the, in the peace, he starts to go from sort of bad to worse and we see that this is actually the fruit of his failures in his life. When the people asked for a king, it wasn't so much that desire that's the problem. It's they wanted a king like the other nations to, to rule over them and to fight their battles. They wanted to be confident in their leader, their king, not confident in God. And so that's why it's a sort of a type of covenant breaking with God for them to even ask for another king like the nations around them because God was already their king. He was their king enthroned above the cherubim of the ark, encamped in the middle of their camp. He was their king. It was a theocracy, and they were rejecting that. And Samuel said to them, you must keep God's commandments, you and your king. He says, if you do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. And in the very next chapter, Saul gets rebuked by Samuel because he goes ahead and performs a sacrifice that he's not obliged to do. And Samuel says to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, 
But now your kingdom shall not continue. That was at the very start of Saul's rule as king. Furthermore, Saul fails to follow God's command to annihilate the Amalekites and he tries to explain away his sin. He tries to rationalise it. And we can do that at times too, can't we? We can make excuses for our sin. Samuel says to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbour of yours, one who is better than you. And at that point in time, the Spirit of God moved from Saul and it rushed upon David. And we're starting to see in this part of the Bible the fruit of failure of King Saul who rebels against God time and time again. And when Samuel speaks to him, he says, Why are you seeking God now? God's become your enemy. In today's text, the archers find Saul. He's badly wounded and he asks his armour bearer to put him down. The armour bearer refuses and Saul falls on his own sword, so to speak. Later some brave men take his body from the Philistines and they give it a better burial. But what is the take-home message for people like us from this part of the Bible? What can we learn from this negative modelling from King Saul? Well, I think one of the lessons is that we can't trifle with God. Uh, That's a message from the Old Testament that God will bless his people if they walk with him, but if they forsake him, they, they can't be promised any hope. This, and it's the same God, folks, that's the God of the New Testament as well. Uh, we're told in numerous passages that the churches get warned not to forsake the Lord. They're called to walk by the Spirit, walk closely with the Lord, and if they don't continue to live God's way, they won't inherit God's kingdom. We're told time and time again, don't be deceived. If you live in a way that forsakes God and you don't repent for your sin, you won't inherit God's kingdom. The same message can be told in the vine and the branches. Jesus says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we don't remain in Christ, we've got no hope. And there's examples who are brought to our intention in the New Testament as well of people who've swerved from the faith, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, like a ship that should be on its way to New Zealand that gets blown off course and heads down to the Antarctica, Hymenaeus and Alexander swerve from the faith. And we're to learn from their negative model that we mustn't take God in a flippant way. We must be very careful to walk closely with the Lord. And so I think we see something of that in the reign of King Saul. He starts out to be the king of Israel and in the end we see he becomes someone who's God's enemy. Well, in this part of the Bible, we see the seeds of the kingdom of God. We see that there's a group of people, God's people, living in God's place in the land, living God's way under God's law, with their king reigning over them, who's to write out a copy of God's law and to be an example of that. They were to be a people who trusted in God to deliver them from their enemies, not to trust in the king's strength alone. Unfortunately, the people in a sense, rejected God's kingship and looked to trust in their own leader's kingship over them. And in King Saul, they got the kind of king that they they were after. Jesus, on the other hand, is a different kind of king. 
All of the kings of Israel had feet of clay. None of them were perfect. They didn't actually carry out God's law perfectly, the, the law that they wrote down. But Jesus did. Jesus is the perfect king. He always lived God's way. And on account of his work on our behalf, as we put our trust in him, he becomes our king and his work deals with our need, our need to deal with sin. In this part of the Bible, we see two people who are working their lives out. But above all, we see God who's in control of everything. He promises that David will be king. And by the end of the book of uh, Samuel, we see that Saul's kingship gets taken from him and David's kingship is on the ascendancy. We see that the demise of Saul's kingship and David patiently waiting to receive power. We see David being unwilling to put out his hand against God's king. And later on in the story, we see that there's going to be a king on David's throne uh, forever. And Jesus comes as that perfect king. In many ways, the take-home message for us from this part of the Bible is that although we are God's people and we try to make decisions, wise ones and good ones, uh, life is complicated and it will be until the Lord returns or until we return to the earth. But we can be confident that God is working out his plans. We see that from the very start of Samuel, God's working out his plans for who's going to be his king. And we see throughout the rest of the Bible that God's kingship is coming at the end of the ages with Jesus, who is the risen king, who's bringing that kingship in. And so whatever the difficulties we face in life, those times of despair and struggle, we can still remain confident in God's sovereignty over all things. Many other plans of a man's heart, we have our different plans. I was only going to have two boys. But God in his wisdom had a different idea. And he's got different ideas for your life as well. You might think God's will is one thing, but we've got to get used to the fact that God's will could be something else. And he's in control of everything. And he's bringing about his plans and purposes at the end of the ages. And he's going to help us to persevere if we continue with our faith in Christ. Let's continue to be confident in God's sovereign kingship over all things. Let us pray.